One author writes, Grace cannot prevail until law is dead, until moralizing is out of the game. The precise phrase should be, until our fatal love affair with the law is over, until finally and for good our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. As long as we leave in our dramatization of grace one single hope of a moral reckoning, one possible recourse of salvation by bookkeeping, our freedom-dreading hearts will clutch it to themselves. And even if we leave none at all, we will grub for ethics that are not there rather than face the liberty to which grace has called us. Well, this morning, as we conclude uh, our study on the fruit of the Spirit and transition into the next section of Paul's teaching, uh, we notice, at least, uh, some very strange things. Uh, We have, if you will, panned in and looked closely at each of the particular attributes of the Spirit's own fruit that Paul has presented in Galatians chapter 5. And as we conclude them, we have Paul giving this summary statement at the end that probably sounds strange. Against such things, there is no law. This closing statement reminds us that the fruit of the Spirit comes in the midst of an overall argument that Paul has been making to the church in Galatia. Uh, The problem, of course, with uh, doing any kind of topical series or, you know, taking it fruit by fruit uh, is that you forget the overall story that was being told and the argument that Paul is making. And in case, you know, we have forgotten that, Paul snaps us back into it by making this determinative statement. Against such things there is no law. To bring us back to uh, remember that there's this argument he's making with these people because of a temptation that has come to this congregation. They were tempted to go back to the law, you'll remember, as a way of being right with God. And so Paul has warned them that his particular gospel is not from man, it's not through man, it is not of the law, it is not by works, it is not by human tradition, it is not by human revelation, and it cannot be earned or combined with circumcision. And in our immediate context, he has contrasted the way of the Spirit with the way of the law. You remember it was the Spirit and the law, the flesh and the Spirit, the law and works. He keeps going back and forth through all of these comparisons. And he tells us in the immediate context that we're in, if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. And then he concludes his comparison of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit by saying, against such things... There is no law. And so our first point this morning is simply this. The law has no say here. What does Paul mean when he says this? Oftentimes this is interpreted uh, to mean simply that Paul is saying that there isn't any law that's at odds with these virtues that the Spirit produces. Um, And that is by far the majority uh, of the Western tradition translates it that way. So I'm about to do a little... Uh, work here because I'm not going to translate that way and I don't want to be uh, stoned as a heretic by the end of the morning. Um, 
You know, is Paul saying that no law known to man, or at least the Mosaic law, forbids things that the fruit of the Spirit produces, like gentleness and self-control and so forth? I mean, most people say that Paul is saying you're not going to find any adversaries that have any issue with the virtues that, you're, that are listed here that the Spirit is producing in you. But we have to ask the, the question, does that make sense in the paragraph and in Paul's overall argument? You know, is Paul's final salvo, after comparing the law and grace, the way of the Spirit and the way of flesh, to finally say, after he says, you know, uh, if you have the Spirit, then you're not under the law, does he finally conclude by saying, don't you get it? The law is not opposed to the virtues. And even if that's true, that seems a bit trivial at best. The argument isn't, uh, Paul's argument for the Galatians hasn't been from the beginning, for instance, against virtue. He's not against the Galatian Christians producing good fruit. His argument has been from the beginning, how do Gentiles, if you will, get virtue? How do they start producing the things that God wants? Or how are they found right in God's sight? Is it through the means of the law? Or is it through another means altogether? Uh, so, can Gentiles gain favor with God by being circumcised? Must they keep the Torah in all of its you know, great detail? Uh, does their moral refashioning, their becoming new creatures, does it take place at the feet of Moses, do they learn from him and then become, if you will, uh, good enough Christians because they've become, if you, if you will, Jewish enough or they've, they've come under the law enough? Paul seems to have said already that this is not the case. He said in chapter 2, verse 21, if righteousness was of the law, then Christ died for nothing. He says again in chapter 3, verse 21, if the law could have worked then righteousness would have come by the law. If there was a law that would have worked in the refashioning of human beings and making them right in God's sight and making them virtuous before God and finding favor before Him, He says, then God would have just simply given the law and been done with it. Paul has repeated time and time again that the law is insufficient, that Christ is their need, that they must be found in Christ, that they need the Spirit to be made righteous. He's been juxtaposing these things from the beginning, law and grace, freedom and slavery, flesh and spirit, grace and works. He's concerned about these Galatians being placed under the law. So does he finish his recounting of the fruit of the Spirit to simply say, thankfully the law doesn't have any beef with these things? So it all works out anyway. I mean, does Paul try to reconcile what he's been opposing up to now by saying, the law and the fruit of the Spirit aren't mad at each other after all? I mean, that's the culmination of my whole argument. It would seem, again, a little lackluster. It would also seem to be a turn in what he's been trying to prove. Uh, what I'm going to put before you this morning is, like I've mentioned, a minority interpretation, but it does have some legs, you know, 
uh, Chrysostom uh, in his early commenta- commentary on Galatians interprets it this way, so this isn't uh, out of nowhere. Uh, more recently, you'll see commentators like John Stott or uh, ethicists uh, like Oliver O'Donovan uh, translated this way. But Paul is saying that the virtues of the Spirit, what I'm going to put before you, don't fall under the purview of the law. Now, again, that's a weird sentence, so what does that mean? He's saying that the fruit of the Spirit aren't under the law's jurisdiction, that the law doesn't have any rule here when you're working in this sphere of the Spirit, that we've gone beyond this old way of being judged by the law. Uh, This generative phrase that's used often is translated in the New Testament against. Against such things there is no law. But it's not exclusively interpreted that way. In fact, in in, uh, some of the early Greek writings, like uh, the philosophical writings, for instance, of Aristotle and his logic and in his politics, he says several times, those who are led by virtue, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Those who are led by virtue are above the law. Or he's saying the law is not over them, that they've, they've transcended the law. Or Jesus before Pilate, using the same turn of phrase, says, you would have no authority over me had it not been given to you from above. And so Paul is saying here that it's a jurisdictional issue, that the Spirit of the resurrection, the spirit that raised Christ to the dead, who gave him a new body, who, 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 who uh, you know, issued forth a new world and a new creation, who created right here a new people by the power of the resurrection, that that spirit also gave them a new ethic that is not under the same jurisdiction as the world in which we were created. It's not the Mosaic law anymore by which we are functioning. Chrysostom, in his commentary on Galatians, says, What would the law have to contribute to one who had all he needed, who had love as the most qualified teacher of philosophy, the soul that practices virtues by the Spirit, needs no legal advice? You see, Paul already told us the law can't do what the Spirit does. Paul has told us that that Spirit has placed us in a new position, that we are in Christ, that we are in the Christ who has been raised from the dead, who is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. And the ethic that he's given to us is from that world. It's no longer tied to this world. It's not tied to the elemental things of this age, as he's already spoken to us, right? The law governs those things. But we have an ethic of heaven. Again, that's not necessarily against what the law has said, but it supersedes it and it expands it in ways that the law couldn't even imagine. The law couldn't ask or expect things like, you have heard that it's said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Do good to those who spitefully use you. When you think of this ethic, think of Christ. Think of what Paul will ask us soon to be uh, about bearing burdens. Think of grace. The gospel changes our ethic. It changes our view of love, our view of how to treat 
even the disobedient and the wayward, radically different than what the law teaches us. The law teaches that the disobedient should be punished, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That if you're guilty, then you receive the due due payment for your guilt. But at the cross and the resurrection, the Spirit teaches us something that the Mosaic Law may have hinted at, but was unable to produce. And thus our morality gains a very different existence, because the Spirit testifies clearly to the idea that the love of God, the love and the grace of God, something that the law doesn't speak to in its most basic form, is bent on blessing and doing good to fallen humanity. The law teaches what is expected of humanity, and that's all that it teaches. Do this, and you will live. But what Christ teaches us in grace through the cross is that God wants to go far beyond merely a requirement for humanity, and he comes bent in mercy towards those who have not met the requirement, met the requirement, and then says to us, this is now the ethic of the new age. This is our first and beginning starting point from which all of our morals then pour forth. The fruit of the Spirit, if you have been paying attention for the past weeks, all have a cross-shaped love built into each of them. Something that goes beyond mere earning and deserving. So the Spirit that creates a new community creates a community that has a whole new way of being, a new way of doing life with one another. I mean, think of what the law says. Even as we read this morning, Leviticus You do do good to the poor in the law, correct? But when it says, love your neighbor, notice how it frames it, the one who lives in your land. Not the Samaritan and not the Gentile down the road, but just the one who is confined to this particular community. Christ teaches us, who is my neighbor? Everyone, enemy included. What is love? Well, laying down your life for your friends, well, that's something beyond what the law asks. And also, yeah, but while you were still enemies of God, Christ died for you. And that now is also our ethic as well. See, the Spirit gives His community, the community of the Spirit, you, the church, a new value system. I mean, how does one gain worth? We'll talk in a moment. The law has an answer to that question. But the Spirit says it's not based on race, ethnicity, wealth, gender, obedience, all the things that the law has something to say about. Who ranks where? Oh, the law has plenty to tell you about who ranks where in the community based on all of those measures. But instead, the Spirit teaches us that God gives the same grace to all sorts of people. And since this grace, this gift, is the basis of the community, the basis of the church, the ground of competition among the community is completely removed. There is no ranking system because everyone comes in at the exact same level. And in case you missed it, the level's not good. We didn't all come in as, you know, at least A-minus students and above. We all came as unworthy. And we're given a gift. 
And if that's the case, how do you try and one-up another if that's the value system on which you were born? You came and you all... So what's the first thing you admit when you join this community? I have nothing good within me. I need Christ and his mercy. And then you look to your neighbor and you want to say, but let me tell you how I'm better than you. Paul says that just that value system died when the law died. And when we died to it, it's all over because we came as those who needed gift and grace. Our worth now is found in Jesus and in his work. And all of us have the same work of Christ given on our behalf. And therefore, we all have the exact same worth and the same value. And we're taught the more we can live out of that new way, that new ethos, a way that gives love to the undeserving and the ill-deserving. Paul says, the more spiritual you are, notice what he says in chapter 6, you who are spiritual, right after he says what? If you're led by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. You who are spiritual, what does he mean by that? People who are walking in the Spirit. All of us have the Spirit, right? He says, but those who are walking according to the Spirit, that's the spiritual one, the one that is following the lead of the Holy Spirit. You go with gentleness to the one who has fallen. He says, why go that way? Well, because you know who you are. You might also be tempted. Don't go in arrogance. You have nothing but what the Spirit has given. So go in gentleness trying to restore one who has fallen just as you were fallen when you entered. How do we know we have missed this? How do we know that we've missed this ethic or this way of living? Paul tells us. I want to see us the second thing this morning, the law in our members. Uh, and I mean that as far as the law in our, in our church members, if you will. Look what he says in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I mean, think of the Galatian context. Those who have been called by the Spirit where the Mosaic requirements, if you will, are all done because Christ has fulfilled all the law on their behalf for Jew and Gentile. That should mean Jew and Gentile arrogance and envy should all be over. There is no ranking system anymore. The Jew isn't higher ranked than the Gentile, and the Gentile isn't to be envied over the Jew. I mean, think of what's happened already in this community. We're circumcised and you're not. So you're not quite as spiritual as us, Paul says. That kind of conceit has no place here. What about envy? I mean, it must be nice to be able to coast through, live lawless, and still be accepted by God while we've been working our tails off all of our life, not to mention, you know, uh, several different exiles along the way. Or the Gentiles. Well, it must be nice to be born into the right people group and have this whole inheritance that we didn't have. Paul says, if you're in Christ, all that work's been done and all that way of comparing one with the other should also be done. And therefore, conceit and envy and all that competition should have been done away with. But we know that we're not living in step with the Spirit in communal life 
When these sorts of things start to arise, it's a dead giveaway. If we're still living life as if it's a competition to be won, we don't get it yet. If we're still living our life as if the whole of our existence is an accusation against which we must justify ourselves, and therefore we've got to take everyone down a notch so that we're okay, then we don't get it yet. If we're living in rivalry and jealousy and tension, then we're not walking in step with the Spirit, Paul was saying. You see, the gospel is intended to free you from the need to be defensive and reactive because you have no need to any longer prove yourself. All of the proving is done. It's all over. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we believed that? I mean, you don't need to defend your worth at all anymore. I mean, think of all the energy you could save. You don't need to earn your spot or vie for your position or make sure people notice what you're doing or what you've done. You're accepted and wholly acceptable in God's sight and so is your neighbor in the congregation. Paul says, if that's true for both of you, how is it that you're competing with one another, envying one another, conceited over each other? How, how can it be possible that one takes pride over another when you come on the same ground, you've been given the same gift, you're indwelt by the same Spirit, and all has been done already on your behalf? There's nothing left to prove. But you see, life under law is a life of measurement and comparison and competition, of ledgers. It's, you know, the win-loss column is all over the life of the law. You know, what did you do last that either earns my favor or disfavor? What have I done to either prove that I'm worthy or unworthy? Where do I stand? How do I rank? How's my life going in comparison to their life? Does it mean that they're more blessed by God than I am? You know, all of those things still show that we're functioning over these elemental principles of the world where the law is saying, do it and live. Keep on trying and you might get there. And the problem with the law is you can't win. I mean, you can never win when you're keeping score. Hopefully I won't forget to say this. Uh, but you can't win when you keep score because you will always be forced to judge others. Right? How are they doing in comparison to me? Where do I stand in relation to them? Where do they stand in relation to me? And so not only will you be forced to judge others, you will never measure up yourself. You'll never keep your own expectations of yourself and you'll never catch up to some people who are ahead of you. You see, when there's a whole life of scorekeeping, you cannot love, you can only live according to weights and measurements, owing and deserving, earning and worth. And from that is born envy and rivalry, and it produces nothing fruitful in the realm of the Spirit. And it's a test you cannot pass. You will never do enough to be at rest with yourself. You'll never do enough to where at the end of the day you'll say, 
I got it. I'm acceptable now. I mean, you would have done it already, right? I mean, one of my favorite older Onion articles, and this was long before uh, Kanye West's uh, massive transitions, and he's had several of them since. But it was an Onion article that said, you know, Conway West uh, retires because he finally found fulfillment. And so he says, you know, my great goal in life was to finally be at a place where I did enough to where I knew that I'd accomplished all that I needed to accomplish to be okay with myself. And says, you know, speaking from his farm in Iowa, he said, well, that happened last Friday night at about 8 p.m. And so now I have nothing left to prove. Uh, The reason why it's funny is we realize that's not going to happen for him, and it hasn't, and it's not going to happen for you either. You see, the way of the law never produces the fruit of the Spirit because we'll always be competing and comparing. And if you think you've made something, pride will have to be the result. If you feel like you've failed, defense and protection will have to be your modes of operation. I mean, what if you're outclassed or outperformed? What if someone gets ahead? What if you start to fall behind and life does not work out the way that you expected? What if your rights get trampled on or you lose your place? What if people don't think highly enough about you? You see, a spirituality that is still competitive is so because it still has to prove something. It still feels it needs something to really be accepted and acceptable. A spirituality that is still envious is so because it hasn't received everything yet. It wants more and other people are advancing beyond them. It still believes that in order to thrive and enlarge, other people must shrink. You know, there's limited goods and I must have what they have or I'm not going to be who they are. And we all can't be winners here, you know. (laughs) And Paul says that shows an utter lack of freedom. You're still a slave to the old way. The world of do this and get that, or do this and live, or kill or be killed. A world of law. But in the Spirit's way, that law has no more jurisdiction. It doesn't rule over us in that way anymore. And so finally, I want to see this morning grace as a trickle-down ethic. Grace as a trickle-down ethic. Paul believes that the gospel he preaches, the grace that it both contains and displays, is meant to actually cascade into the life of the community. That it's to become our ethic. That our ethical life is to be driven by the same gospel that saves and sanctifies us personally. You see, the love of God displayed in the life of Jesus and experienced in us in grace is the center of our salvation, but Paul wants us to see that it's also the center of our morality, a way of life that the flesh knows not of, a way of life that the law cannot control or command. The law can't ask these things of you. It doesn't understand them in this way. You see, the Spirit's way is grace and not law. A grace that says to you, the game's over. You've already won. What is there left to prove or to do or to fight for? Christ is for you, and you're as acceptable as you're ever going to be before the sight of God. Christ has obeyed on your behalf. You're as holy as you're ever going to need to be in order to enter into the gates of heaven. 
that Christ sits at the right hand of God and every day intercedes on your behalf by His very presence, and you can already know the announcement over your life, enter, well done, good and faithful servant. A grace that thinks little of self because it knows all of its own weaknesses and knows that we are not above any of it. Whatever our brothers and sisters may fall into is not something that's beyond our own capacity and capability to fall into as well. The sin might be different. We might have no taste for that. But the impulses are the same. Which is why Paul will go on to say, as we read, you who are spiritual, restore in gentleness, lest you too be tempted. Because we all know that we entered as those who were tempted, tried, and failed. And not just once, but all life long, which is why we finally cried out, Christ have mercy on me, a sinner. Grace looks like something when it comes into the world. It takes on the shape of a cross. Christ for us, which is why Paul will go on to say, hey, bear one another's burdens. Carry a load that's not your own, not because they've earned it or deserved it, not because it's your problem, because that's the shape of grace. It comes and takes on burdens that are not its own to bear. Christ for sinners, though he knew no sin. And now he releases us to each other and says, you see that person over there struggling with their own burden, whether it be sin or hardship or trial or grief? He says, go pick it up. Not because it will earn you anything, but because there's nothing left to earn. And so you can go and uh, bind yourself to a burden that will make you less, but in one sense, not deplete you at all, because everything is yours in Christ. He says, in doing that, notice, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill Christ's law. Notice Paul doesn't say, so fulfill the law. He says, you fulfill the law of Christ, this, this thing that's transcended and beyond the Mosaic legislation or, or the moral law that's built into this creation, a law that can tell you that you'll be condemned but cannot tell you how to be saved. And Christ says, I want you to go out in my ethic, to those who are in deep need. For Paul, neighbor love is pinnacle because of the context of what's happening in Galatia. I mean, think of how this book started. Think of where we've been. I can't review all 20-some-odd sermons at this point. But there's a congregation so divided that Paul says, you're going to end up denying the gospel preached to you. And this is what he means. That this gospel comes out in the community, cascades out into the community as neighbor love. How do we live in the world? I mean, not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but grace upon grace. We are disconnected from God and others because of the law. Where we're doing and doing and doing, but we're never done. Where we're fighting and fighting and fighting, but we never win. And because of that, we avoid God or we're angry at God and we compete with others. We're either you know, envious of them or we're proud and arrogant as we stand over them. But love brings the whole, where it says there's nothing to be done, just gifts to be given. 
See, the cross does free us, as we mentioned, from this reactive, defensive, self-protective morality where we have to be in the right so that we're okay, where we can't dirty ourselves because people will think that we're accepting of that kind of behavior. But the Spirit has set us free. And Paul says, so walk where the Spirit leads. Bear the fruit that the Spirit bears. In the Spirit, we're no longer to treat one another based on intrinsic or social or ethical worth. Because that's not how we were loved. Christ didn't decide if we were worth it at first. He decided to love us. And because of that, He made it worth it. And He made us worthy. And the Spirit's fruit flows into us as sinners, but as that Spirit's fruit flows into us, it also flows out of us towards sinners that are like us. We notice that is the context of the fruit of the Spirit. It didn't just jump out of nowhere. Paul didn't just say, I want to give you uh, the virtues of the Spirit at this point in my lecture concerning law and grace and uh, freedom and slavery. He gives the fruit of the Spirit because of, the con- uh, because of what's needed in that community at the time. Notice, look at the Spirit's fruitful work in the community as he goes on. Those who are in error use the spirit of gentleness to restore such a one. Where do we find that fruit? Well, in the fruit of the Spirit. Bear one another's burdens. What does that look like? Pick up what isn't your problem. Well, that's the fruit of love. Doing that which is one way towards someone else who is ill-deserving. Be under control for the sake of others. Do good to all, even to the least deserving. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Others are struggling. Be patient. Endure with those who don't get it yet. When strife happens, be a peacemaker. For the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Be kind to all. Be joyful always. Our ethic, you see, is now framed by our Savior and the gospel that He brings to us. Our ethic is an ethic of rescue, an ethic of love, not an ethic of counting and requiring and keeping record. If the goal is Christ formed in us, if that is the manner of our sanctification, when that form comes, it will be in the shape of a cross, bent and extended towards sinners who are ill-deserving and willing to go humbly and gently to deal with those who are in need of help and also being willing to receive that sort of help because we all come from the same place with the same needs and have the same wonderful Savior that's taken us out of the game of having to fit, uh, you know, to fit the mold, to be okay, to measure up. We are accepted and acceptable. Therefore, let us love one another as the community of the faithful by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray.